feed if it's set up in a way that's right for you. I mean, I found 21 different habit strategies so people can really figure out. And that's very encouraging because when we change our habits, we change our lives. And when if we have habits that work for us, we're just so much more likely to be happier, healthier, and more productive. Welcome to another episode of Right of Your Life, where life happens and life storytelling transforms it. Our show is brought to you by lifestorytelling.com. And guess what? You don't have to be a writer to write your life stories. Lifestorytelling.com will teach you how. If you've been through hell and lived to tell about it, or your family skeletons are poking out of the closet, you'll want to check it out at lifestorytelling.com. Our guest today is Gretchen Rubin, who is an author and happiness researcher. Can I call you that, Gretchen, a happiness researcher? Sure, absolutely. (laughs) Her latest book is Better Than Before and is about how we change our habits. And her books, The Happiness Project and Happier at Home, were both instant New York Times bestsellers. Here she writes about her adventures as she test drives ideas from contemporary science and ancient wisdom about building good habits and a happier life. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about being a happiness researcher or your, your background in trying to find happiness? Well, I've written, I wrote many books before I wrote The Happiness Project, and they look very different. One was a biography of Winston Churchill. One was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex. Um, and <laughs> I think my real subject is human nature. Yeah. You know, so happiness is a huge part of human nature, but I'm interested in kind of all facets of human nature. And so I think I've slowly been trying to work my way through developing a deeper and deeper understanding. And so at some point on a bus, in the pouring rain and it occurred to me like, well, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I want to be happy. But I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about happiness or what I should do to be happy or if I could make myself happier. And I thought, oh, I should do a happiness project. There you go. And I was just going to do it for myself. But it was so rich and deep because I often will go off and just sort of do research projects for fun. But this was so there was so much there that that I was like, man, Maybe this should be my next book project because I was finishing up a biography of JFK at that point. Right. And I mean, once I got started, it's just this vast subject. So I wrote The Happiness Project and then Happier at Home, which is like going deeper into the idea of home. What do we want from our idea of home? It's hard to be happy if you're not happy at home. And then Habits, my most recent book, came out of when I would talk to people about happiness, a lot of times when they were saying what was a challenge for them a lot of times it was things that had to do with a habit problem. So somebody's like, well, I'm really frustrated because I really want to write this book, but I'm not making consistent progress. Well, that's about the habit of being able to do consistent work. So that's how I got drawn into the subject of habits, just because it was something that came up so often in the study of happiness. Wow. And, you know, productivity and health, all these things very much reflect the state of our habits. That's neat. And so you've done some research. And I also wanted to mention the Happiness Project One Sentence Journal because we've given that as a life story toolkit item. Oh, great. Excellent. The Happiness Project Journal is, it's a five-year record. For those of you who, you can go back and listen to that episode. 
I've given this as gifts because it helps to remind you every single day. Just reflect and be happier. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to hear you say that. And what I found is that it's manageable. I think a lot of us have yes. this journal keeping impulse. Exactly. But it sort of <laughs> seems becomes so onerous that you abandon it. You know, like how many journals go like 10 days and you write 10 right. amazing entries and then you <laughs> let it go. The thing that's been amazing to me is one sentence is really enough. Like it exactly. really does bring back memories because, you know, with a lot of a lot with writing and I'm sure you talk about this is like if you just do a little bit consistently, it is amazing how much you can get done over the course of a month or six months or a year. True. Wow. Now, taking it back to habits and happiness, I have a feeling that sometimes that we develop a habit of hiding our own story or not listening to our own story. And therefore, we start to become unhappy and, and we hide things from ourselves. Have, have you researched that or you come across that at all in your research or experienced that? Well, it's very interesting that you talk about hiding. And I think definitely with habits, you should pay very close attention to anything you want to hide. Mm -hmm. because um, like, this comes up in habits because a lot of times if you're trying to hide something, it's because your actions don't reflect your values. So if you are hiding the fact that you're making purchases, well, there's something about those purchases or the fact that you're buying stuff that you feel bad about. Because if you felt fine about it, like I go shopping, I just leave them out in the middle of the floor. I don't care who sees it. Right. I don't have an issue <laughs> with it. Or if like you're eating secretly. You know, or you don't want people to know that you visited a certain website or how much time you spend on something. A friend of mine scaled back dramatically how much she allowed her children to watch television because when her pediatrician said, how much TV do your kids watch in a day, she would just lied. And then she realized, like, <laughs> I should either tell the truth or change how much. Or change it. Or change right. it. And so I think you're exactly right that the things that we try to hide. So if there's something that you're very concerned about hiding. It's not that you necessarily want to reveal it. It just means that it's somehow supercharged for you. And so you should just think about it and what that right. means and whether you want to keep hiding it or whether you want to bring it to the surface. And if you're hiding something from yourself, I mean, maybe that's part of the key of, is, is discovering what exactly are you hiding from yourself? You know, what, what are you not contemplating or reflecting on? Yes, and this is so hard. It is so hard. Yep. And I'm always kind of trying to come up with like indirect ways to, to get to look at yourself in the mirror, you know, because yes. you can't, it's so hard to get a direct look at yourself. And so, and even things like, what do you like to do? You know, a lot of adults are like, well, I don't even know what I do for fun. Like they, they've completely lost touch with, well, what would you do for fun? And so I always am trying to look for questions that will shine kind of an indirect light. So like one good question is, what did you do for fun when you were 10 years old? Because what you did for fun when you were 10 years old is probably something you would enjoy now, either for work or for pleasure. So whether you were writing in your journal or you were making up stories or you were making videos with your friends or you were walking in the park with your dog or you were making arts and crafts projects, somehow try right. to tap into that as an adult. Or some, a question, an indirect question that's very helpful with habits is, was there a time in your life when you were successful? If, if there's something that's challenging you now. So like, let's say you're like, well, you know what? I've been wanting to write this book for years and I just can't do it. Then say to yourself, was there a time in your life when you did consistently write? And then you mm -hmm. say, well, yeah, well, when I was living with those roommates after college, that's when I was like working on my XYZ project and I did a lot on that. Okay, well, what was different? Because a lot of times we can get a really good um, insight into ourselves by thinking about our ourselves at different times. Right. Um, 
because things change and then you don't realize like, oh, it's because I had a friend who did it with me. And so I felt like I was accountable to somebody or at that time in my life, like I know somebody, this is such a mundane example, but she was like, oh, I hate cooking. I hate cooking. And I said, well, was there ever a time in your life when you did cook? And she said, oh, I did cook, you know, this one time. Well, it turned out she didn't hate cooking. She hated grocery shopping. And she had successfully cooked a lot when she lived with a roommate who loved to go grocery shopping. So would bring home all these, all these ingredients. Right. So it was like, okay, we'll just use a certain, you know, like figure out how to have somebody else buy the groceries for you and then you can cook. And that's, that's worked for her. So sometimes, you know, you look at, um, oh, I, I was really productive when I was in a class. Okay. Well, maybe you need to take a class or I was really productive when I got up early to do something. Okay. Well, maybe you can get up early now, whatever, you know, whatever that might be. Right. So it's all about improving and discovering those nuggets of fun or excitement or passion or something that you've had along the way that you've lost. I think as adults, we tend to do that. We just kind of put away some of the fun things that we used to do in the exercise of adulthood. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of times people do expect to be motivated by their desire to do something. In mm -hmm. my experience, your desire to do something is not very well correlated with whether in fact you're going to do it. And what I've noticed is that for a very, very large percentage of the population, accountability is the key aspect. So I created this framework for dividing all of humanity into four categories. Yes. <laughs> um, and there's a quiz online for people who want to take it at GretchenRubin.com. I call it the four tendencies because this has to do with your tendency. And the largest group is the group that I call the name obliger. That's me. Are you an obliger? <laughs> I took it. Oh, oh yeah, yes, okay. I'm an obliger. Well, many, the, the many, the proud, the obliger. I'm in good company yeah, then, yeah. Huh? Uh, <laughs> And obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. Yes. They would never miss a work deadline because there they've got a boss and a team and, you know, clients or whoever waiting for them. But when it's just a project that they're working on for themselves, they struggle. And so if that is the pattern that explains you, if you, if you, if you ever describe yourself as a people pleaser, if you ever feel mm -hmm. like why, if you feel frustrated, like why am I meeting other people's priorities, but not my own? My answer, don't think about how can I think more deeply about how important this is to me? That's not going to make a difference. The difference is outer accountability. So you want to like join a writing group. You want to hire a writing coach. You want to uh, have a Facebook group where everybody reports every day on how much they've done. You want to like you want to get a job where like you know like get a contract <laughs> where you have to deliver. Oh, that's so true. Yeah, because because for obligers that it, once they have outer accountability, they are absolutely consistent. It's when there's only the inner accountability that's when they struggle. And so the answer is to just punch in that outer accountability. It always frustrates me, probably as an obliger, when people say, well, if it's really a priority, you would make it happen. No. You know, I'm like, no, it really is a priority, but no. I just can't make it happen. <laughs> I completely agree with you. And the fact is, it's interesting because obliger is the largest tendency, but the other three tendencies don't understand this. And mm -hmm. so they will often say things like that. Well, well, you said it was important to you, so just do it. Or I don't understand like we're ha why we keep having this conversation. Exactly. You'll even see situations where obligers will ask for outer accountability because they've intuited that it's something that they need and other people will back away because they don't understand how critical it is. For instance, mm -hmm. I know somebody who is a journalist who was going on, on book leave to write a book and was really struggling to write, was incredibly prolific and efficient at work, but then was struggling and 
because there was just like this long, there's sort of this year and there were no deadlines and there was nobody kind of calling him up. And and he was used to like, we're, you know, got to have it by Friday and all that. And so he said to his editor, Hey, I need deadlines. Make up some deadlines. (laughs) And the editor very well intentioned was like, Oh no, no, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. Take your time. I don't want to put any pressure on you. And so then the guy ended up writing it like all in the last three weeks when there was like the final deadline of, okay, it's going to, it's like going into copy editing, you know, or else you're not publishing your book. And so the person didn't realize how crucial that accountability deadline supervision could be for somebody. So if you know you need that, you got to figure out a way to get that because that's going to be the crucial element that's going to allow you to keep up. Right. And if other people are saying to you, like, well, I mean, I, I my tendency is upholder tendency. Upholders, mm-hmm. very, very tiny tendency. We readily meet outer and inner expectations alike. And what and the thing about upholders, and I'll say this is that they tend to be very judgmental because they're like, I don't understand why everybody's just like not doing everything they said they're going to do. And now I understand much better the pattern of when people follow through and when they struggle to follow through. And and upholders can be very judgmental. Somebody the other day said to me, well, it's a matter of integrity. If somebody has integrity, then they're going to follow through. And I was like, that's not true. (laughs) I know tons of people with absolute integrity who aren't doing like and that's wrong it's not integrity it's not willpower it's not self-control it's not motivation it's such a relief to know that (laughs) motivation it's not laziness like there are all these bad things no build in the accountability and watch that person overcome any you know just do it absolutely yeah Yeah. i love that i can't wait to because i know you're doing a podcast on each one of the four (laughs) i can't wait for the obliger to come out Uh, i've listened to the uh the upholder and i have a daughter who's apparently an upholder uh, and and she is definitely an upholder uh, and so it's very interesting looking at her in a new way so i'm so glad you did that research and put that out in a way that we can understand because it really is a big relief for me and for probably hundreds of thousands of other people. Let me ask you, back to the happiness project, and you discovered, this is years ago, the eight splendid truths of happiness. And one of them I wanted to ask you about is, is the first splendid truth. And you say, to be happier, you have to think about feeling good, feeling bad, and feeling right in an atmosphere of growth. I like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Why do you have to think about those things? Well, that sounds so simple, but my gosh, that like melted my brain trying to understand like, what do you have, like, how do you think about happiness? So I think the first two are very easy to understand, feeling good and feeling bad. So to be happier, you want to think about, well, what can I do that's going to give me more feeling good? What's going to give me more feelings of love, of enthusiasm, of fun, Um, of connection, like what's going to make me feel good? And then you want to think like, well, what's making me feel bad? And I have to say, for me, I thought more about eliminating things that were making me feel bad. What's making me angry? Mm -hmm. What's making me feel bored? What's making me feel resentful? What's making me feel guilty? And trying to remove things from my life that were sources of bad feeling. Because your happiness, it takes you up and it also brings you down. So you want to like get more good and get rid of what's dragging you. Now, feeling right in an atmosphere of growth were harder to understand. So feeling right, you know, a scientist can't say this, but I can say it, which is that happiness doesn't always make you feel happy. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we do things for our happiness that don't actually make us feel good. So I think like a very common example that they talk about in happiness research is the commute. A bad commute makes people feel bad every single day. You don't adjust to it. It's a big, big drag. If you have a bad commute and you want to feel happier, fix your commute. That's always the advice they give. But to me, I'm like, well, but the reason that a lot of people have a bad commute is for their children. 
They want to live in a specific school district. They want to have a bigger house with a yard or whatever it is. Right. And so they've willingly and consciously said to be the kind of parent that I want to be and to give my children the kind of childhood that I want for them, I'm going to have to put up with a bad commute. And so I feel right about that choice, even though every day it's making me, it's dragging me down. It's not making me feel good every day. It's making me feel bad every day because every day I'm like, oh my gosh, the traffic's so bad. But I feel right about that choice. Or, you know, you're going to the sit at the sick bed of your grandfather who was always terribly mean to you. And you're like, why am I here? It's like, because you feel like that's the right thing to do. Even though you don't want to be there and it doesn't make you feel good, in some way it's contributing to your happiness because you're living up to your own values. Right. And then an atmosphere of growth is very interesting. And this is something that can be used if you're in a period where you're feeling very bad. Because we all go through periods where you're just feeling bad. And there's really like, mm-hmm. it's, it makes sense that you feel bad and you just got to feel bad until you don't feel bad anymore. The atmosphere of growth is that we feel happier when we're growing, when we're learning something new, when we're challenging ourselves, when we're helping other people, when we're making something better, we're fixing something, when we're somehow acting in a positive way in the world, whether we're making, you know, we're learning something ourselves or, you know, gardening, teaching your dog a new trick, you know, anything, taking mm-hmm. all this growth, this sense of growth, making progress is a, a really important engine for happiness and it's and it is within our conscious control and so sometimes if you're like everything in your life feels very bad if you can seek out an area where you have an atmosphere of growth even if it's something as simple as cleaning out your coat closet something right. super you know <laughs> tackle the medicine cabinet you uh-huh. see a little bit of something getting better it gives you a surge of kind of energy and good cheer and so all these four things you have to think about um, because if one of them is missing I think then it's not, you're not thinking about every aspect of what is possible in a, in a happier, healthier, more productive life. So you want to think about all four and how you can get them all four on track. So let me ask you this. I think it would be hard to start this or have a habit of this, I guess, to go back to the habits as well. How would you suggest someone start to be happier by thinking about feeling good, feeling bad, and feeling right in an atmosphere of growth. So I think, you know, like sit down or like get stuck on a bus the way I did (laughs) and think like, well, what do you want more of? Do you want to see your friends more? Are you starved for solitude? Do you need more time to yourself? Do you miss adventure? So think about like, well, what would it look like? And again, this is a good place to say, well, what did I do for fun when I was 10 years old? I talked to a guy who when he was 10, he was an obsessive, obsessive fishing. You know, he'd go out all the time and go fishing. And I was like, well, when was the last time you went fishing? And he was like, like three years ago. And I was like, he's like, oh, I love to fish, but I have never have time to fish. I'm like, I think you do. I think you do have time to fish. Right. You just haven't said to yourself, oh, when am I going to go fishing? And then like, once you think about it, you can. And then feeling bad. Okay, well, go, go through your day. What are the things that make you feel bad? For instance, I have a friend who said, um, she's a working mom. And she said she realized that in the average workday, she did not spend that much time with her sons. And the whole morning was just like yelling and nagging, like, hurry up, where's this? Where's your homework? You haven't finished your breakfast, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And she realized it was bad. It, it was a bad way to start the morning for all of them. And so she rethought her whole morning to make it a lot calmer and more pleasant and really worked on that. And then for feeling right, it's more like, okay, well, does your life reflect your values? Back to the idea of what are you hiding? Like, are there things in mm-hmm. your life where you really don't feel comfortable with your choices? Where like, maybe you're doing something, you know, you're like, well, you know, I am watching three hours of reality television every night. Like, <laughs> that's the fact of it. Is that how I really want to be spent? Or I'm staying up every night until 1am. 
And then I wake up in the morning and I'm exhausted day after day after day. Is that really the trade-off that I want to make? That extra two hours of goofing around and doing online shopping is like that really better than going to sleep and feeling refreshed the next morning. Mm. And then atmosphere of growth. Is there a place in your life where you're helping someone or teaching somebody something or learning something yourself or making something better? And it, it can be something... You could be helping a nonprofit. You could be raising a child. You could be learning how to do yoga. You could be learning how to use Scribner. You know, you could right. be anything <laughs> um, where you feel like, man, I'm, I'm learning. I'm, I'm growing. Right. I'm contributing to growth. And so you look I in your that. life and everybody's would be different. Like somebody might need more music in their life. I don't need more music in my life. I don't really like music very much. But for somebody else that might pervade their idea of a happiness project. Well, that's good because this causes reflection. And that's what I think we all have a, a shortage of yeah. is, is actual reflection yes. back on our life. And that's where we can be intentional about these things. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It's all about consciously choosing what you're doing. Mindfulness. I mean, I'm like the least mindful person in the whole world. And it's just it's at the core of everything. It's like, who are you? What's true about you? How do you put it into practice in your in your actual daily life? It sounds so simple. It is so challenging. It is. Well, tell me a little bit more about the four tendencies. The quiz is free, right? To figure out which yep, of yep, the four tendencies yep, you are. Yep. Where can they find that at? Well, to go directly to it, you can go to happiercast.com slash quiz. So happiercast is the URL for my podcast. Okay. I'm happier with Gretchen Rubin. So you can also look at my site, GretchenRubin.com. You can find it there. And yeah, this quiz will take, tell you whether you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or rebel. And it'll also give you an option to get like a little report if you want to read more about yourself. And then and obviously, and better than before, I talk much more about the four tendencies. And I'm actually right now working on, because so many people since the book has come out and since the quiz was released, have emailed me asking me like these extremely detailed follow-up questions right? Um, that I didn't have time <laughs> to go into, like I didn't have space to go into in better than before. So I'm working on kind of a handbook that will be just a very, very deep nuanced look on the four tendencies, both managing yourself better and then also dealing with other people. Because what happens is like, if I'm an upholder and you're an obliger, which is the case, like mm -hmm. we might not be able to communicate very effectively if I don't understand how you're different from me and you don't understand how I'm different from you because we just see the world in a different way. Once we know that, right. then we can be like, well, it's not that one of us is right and one of us is wrong. We have different perspectives. So how can we set things up so we can both thrive and we can both work together harmoniously? It's not that hard, but you kind of have to figure out what the differences are because then it's just much easier to figure out how to set things up right. How to communicate. How to communicate. Yeah, exactly. So Gretchen, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience? You know, in the end, it's just this idea of, you know, we all have to figure out what's right for us. Different things make us feel good or feel bad. Again, there's no right or wrong. It's just when we know what's true about us, then we can set ourselves up for success. Because I think a lot of times people get discouraged and they blame themselves. You know, they say, right. I'm lazy. I'm not motivated. I have no follow through. I have no willpower. I'm not making myself a priority, things like that. And it's like, no, you can succeed if it's set up in a way that's right for you. I mean, I found 21 different habit strategies. So there's a ton to choose from. So people can really figure out, I could tell this is the kind of thing that's going to work for me. And that's very encouraging because 
when we change our habits, we change our lives. And when, if we have habits that work for us, we're just so much more likely to be happier, healthier, and more productive. These things are so tied. And one of your 12 personal habits, number one is be Gretchen, right? Yeah, but everybody has to substitute their own name. Yeah, be, yeah, be so, yourself. Yeah, 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 be yourself. It sounds, well, we were talking about this earlier. It sounds like the easiest thing, but it's actually very, very challenging. And yeah. you have to be mindful about it. Yeah. Well, Gretchen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, and it, where can folks connect with you at? Well, for people who love podcasts, I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin with my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's a TV writer in LA. And that's tons of fun. It's, it's fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just crossed 4 million downloads. Awesome. Yes. And so we talk a lot about happiness and good habits. And we're sisters, so we don't let each other mm-hmm. get away with much. <laughs> and then on my site, GretchenRubin.com, I write just about every day about my adventures and happiness and good habits. And then my books, Better Than Before, The Happiness Project, and Happier at Home are all about these sort of linked issues of how to live a happy, healthy, productive life. Highly recommend each one of those. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And it's been a joy visiting with oh, you. Oh, thank you. Great to talk to you. Great information from Gretchen Rubin. Links to her quiz and other great information are in the show notes at rightofyourlife.com slash Gretchen Rubin. It's time now to peek into the Life Story Toolkit. And this is where I share information on one particular tool that you might consider using if you're writing or would like to start writing about your life. The Life Story Toolkit is sponsored by Life Storytelling. Dot com, where you can find your life theme, discover where to start writing, and craft your life into a compelling story. This episode's Life Story Toolkit features six-word memoirs. The six-word memoir debuted as a project of Smith Magazine in November of 2006, and since then, nearly one million short stories have been shared on six-word memoirs and its younger cousin, Smith Teens. Smith Magazine celebrates the joy of storytelling with a focus on personal narrative. They believe everyone has a story, just like we do. Writing in six words is a simple, creative way to get the essence of anything, from the breaking news of the day to your own life and the way you live it. Try it out just for fun. Can you boil your life down into just six words? The great thing about Smith Magazine and Six Word Memoirs is that it's for anybody. It's a storytelling community, a place to read, write, and share stories. They've published four books on Six Word Memoirs, including the New York Times bestseller, Not Quite What I Was Planning, Six Word Memoirs by Writers Famous and Obscure. SmithTeens.com is their younger cousin, and it's a beautiful world of self-expression. In six words, by teens across the world. I encourage everyone listening to stop by sixwordmemoirs.com and read some of the most fascinating memoirs you've ever read. They're all just six words long and may just inspire your own six words. That's all we have for today. Last week, Anais discussed how writing helps people recover from trauma. So if you've had some tough life circumstances or you're going through that right now, you might want to go back and have a listen. Next week, we'll interview a genealogist, Lisa Louise Cook, who bought death certificates with her allowance as a child and tells us why you can look back into your family history to find out who you want to be. 
If you like this podcast, check us out on writeofyourlife.com and share it with your friends and family. You can find the share button on just about any podcast player you're listening to right now. You can also head over to writeofyourlife.com and share it from there. We're on Pinterest, Facebook, and just about anywhere you can hold a great virtual conversation. My handle is Right of Your Life. This show is put together by consulting producer Nick Jaworski at podcastmonster.com and myself, Stacy Curtis. We hope that today you have the right of your life. <laughs>